Welcome to the Illuminate Recovery Podcast. We shed light on mental health issues, mental illness, and addiction recovery. Ways to cope, manage, and inspire. Beyond the self-care we will discuss, you may need the help of a licensed professional. My name is Kurt Neider. I'm a husband, a father, entrepreneur, a handyman, and a student of life. I avoid conflict, I deflect with humor, and I'm fascinated by the human experience. And I'm Shelly Mangum. I am a clinical mental health counselor, and my favorite role of all times is grandma. I am a seeker of truth, and I feel like life should be approached with tremendous curiosity. I ask the dumb questions. I fill in the gaps. The Illuminate Recovery Podcast is brought to you by Illuminate Billing Advocates. Make billing and collection simple with leader in substance abuse and mental health billing services. Verification and analysis of benefits, pre-authorizations, utilization management, accurate claim submission and management, denial and appeal management, and industry-leading reporting. Improve your practice's cash flow and your ability to help your clients with Illuminate Billing Advocates. Sarah Bolton is a business development representative serving in the greater Houston area and brings many years of experience in addiction recovery to the last resort recovery. She has worked for both local and national treatment centers and has also facilitated mindful arts programs for residential treatment centers. Sarah sits on the board of directors for the Houston chapter of Texas Association of Addiction Professionals. Additionally, she is the founder of Sober Eve. Houston's only alcohol-free pop-up nightclub for New Year's Eve. Sarah is a proud mother to a teenage son, Jack, who attends the Marine Military Academy. In her free time, she enjoys painting, modern calligraphy, floral design, event planning, and working out. Thanks for being here, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, intros are kind of funny that way. It's it's a little quirky to hear yourself talked about, but this is this is. (laughs) This sounds like a pretty well-rounded individual, so thanks for coming on. Um, excited to hear you know, more about Last Resort Recovery. Excited to hear about Sober Eve. Great. Well, let's get started. Yeah. You tell, <laughs> so how did you, uh, how did you get into the industry? How did you get into the recovery world? So I'm personally in recovery, and a couple of years into my own sobriety, I found myself just really pining to do something that made a difference in the world. I had no idea what that was. Um, I literally started just seeking and praying about what would be next for me. And I worked in a sales role as an account manager at the time. And at that point, I wasn't even aware of the fact that they had jobs like what I do now in business development and marketing for treatment centers. And so when someone let me know that there was a company here in Houston that was looking to hire uh, someone in that role. I jumped at the opportunity because it was literally the perfect job for me. And I have been doing it ever since. So a little over five years now. Nice. We've had, we spend a little bit of time in that world, right? Cause we're medical billers. And so as we're, as we're working with a lot of the facilities that we work with, a lot of times it ends up being business developers who have time, right? Clinicians are like super busy. They're constantly, you know, in, in working with patients, but it's been really fun to get to know the business development crowd, right? My, my partner likes to say 
the business developers in the recovery world, they're like the cool kids from high school, right? Because <laughs> it seems like it seems like you guys are always just like the most friendly, outgoing people. It's pretty awesome, right? You seem like you fit that mold to a little bit. Um, Thank you. Tell us more about um, what are mindful arts programs. Mindful art is an experiential way to work through trauma. Um, by utilizing art as a medium. And so um, basically some sometimes clients aren't able to really talk about like what specifically is going on with them, but they're able to ex express themselves um, with either drawing, painting, uh, by use of color, um, by use of pressure on paper or canvas. And so it's just another way um, for clients to express themselves. Was that a way that you found that worked well for you to express yourself? Was it a challenge for you to express yourself kind of verbally as you worked through the recovery process? I think I'm constantly learning how to express myself <laughs> as I <laughs> go through this journey of recovery. Um, I'm very thankful for therapy and psychiatry because certainly for me, um, you know, mental disorders have kind of come along with uh, my sobriety. So um, for me, art is just a way to be really present because when you're doing art, you really can't focus on anything else. It kind of takes you out of what you're going through, um, but in a positive way. So rather than like checking out on YouTube or scrolling through Facebook or Instagram, you're allowed to take that energy and redirect it towards something positive, holistic, and meaningful. That's cool. How do you, how do you work with those other treatment centers to help them learn how to do that? So um, it's not something that I'm doing right now. Once I started with The Last Resort, I kind of am just working for them full time. Um, but it was through relationships that I had built in the business development world. Um, when COVID hit, I lost the job that I had. Um, I'd worked for a facility for almost three years. And, um, you know, no one knew what COVID was going to look like in the recovery industry. And so, you know, a lot of us lost our jobs um, as people just sort of preemptively tried to make sure that, you know, the doors to their treatment center stayed open. So for a year, I was on my own doing like some contract business development. That was when I became certified as a mindful art facilitator. And that was how I started working with other treatment centers. So I was working with three different treatment centers, bringing them, uh, bringing them um, mindful art programs to their treatment centers. That's cool. How, how did you, we mentioned, obviously the, I'm sure the uh, Texas Association of Addiction Professionals gives you a ton of opportunities to kind of connect and, and meet new people. How did you get into the idea of Silver Eve? <laughs> yeah, so uh, my co-founder and I were literally in a car on the way to tour a treatment center in Austin. And we were just talking, you know, as people do on a road trip. 
And she's the one that really came up with the idea. She said, wouldn't it be so cool if there was like a nightclub, but a sober one for New Year's Eve? And I have an event planning background. So I was like, yeah, heck yeah, we should, we should try to do it. And so we just started brainstorming and that's where Sober Eve was birthed, like literally in the backseat of a car. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't think we could have imagined how big it would become. Um, We ended up doing three. Um, Unfortunately, due due to COVID, we haven't held it um, in the last year. Um, And we decided to table it this year as well. But we will be bringing it back in 2022. But yeah, it's just one of those things that, you know, I think the misconception, the common misconception is that when you go into recovery, everything that you enjoyed, you're not going to be able to enjoy anymore because you do those things while you're drinking. And certainly partying on New Year's Eve is one of those things. Um, I know that for me, when I first got sober, my sobriety date is June 24th. And so that was just right before the 4th of July. And I remember that first 4th of July, just like sitting at home, so angry, scrolling through Facebook, looking at all of my friends, having all this fun. A lot of them were out on the water. I live here in Houston. And so we're about an hour from the beach. Um, There's also lakes nearby, rivers to float. And I was just angry because I didn't think I could do those things without drinking. Because to me, you you know, when you went to a body of water, you drank. And so um, I, I wanted to shift that experience for anyone who is new in recovery or who just, you know, maybe doesn't want to have alcohol around to have a good time um, to give them that same quality of experience um, and and it'd be really cool. You know, I think that there are some very well-meaning recovery groups who will host New Year's events um, to kind of keep people off the streets. But say, for example, um, it's at a 12-step club. Um, that's not going to feel like you're actually at, like, a flashy nightclub and so that was what we wanted to give this experience of you know the lights the music the mocktail bar um the glamour a place to get really dressed up and so we were able to achieve that in our last sober eve we actually had over 500 men, and it was a remarkable experience just looking out across the crowd and seeing 500 people just like sweaty dancing, breaking it down, 100% sober, having the time of their lives and staying safe and healthy while doing so. Um, so it's one of my proudest achievements and um, my colleague, her name is Bree Brown. She's incredible and um, you know we make a great team. So we'll be bringing it back don't even worry about it. <laughs> well, I'm sure people are dying to have that come back. <clears throat> I'm just trying to imagine the difference between a sober, you know, sober party, sober dress up and really have a lot of fun party as opposed to one that's not sober. 
it's got to have a very different feel to it. And, and I don't know, tell me what, what, what that's like, because you've been to both, I imagine. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think for me, the biggest difference um, is just that the people who are in attendance are so super present. You know, everyone is just full of gratitude and joy. And the joy is not generated by a chemical. It's generated by, like, the experience they're actually in. Um, we never have any, like, fights break out. <laughs> people, are, people are respectful. It's always interesting because um, at the venue where we held it, we had a couple of cops that we had to rent. That was part of the stipulation of the venue. The cops were always amazed by how respectful our people were. And, you know, you know how in recovery, sometimes you've got some folks are rolling in with like, you know, maybe like a face tattoo or something. <laughs> and, you know, maybe they look a certain way that might be prejudged, but then you know, that individual looks them in the eye and is kind and warm. And um, it just made me really proud to see the recovery community show up and be who we are and members of law enforcement to see that and experience that. It was just really special. Mm, that's really cool. So nobody's dancing on the table or taking their clothes off. <laughs> uh, close to it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, people were getting down, um, and it's funny because the venue that we held it at is actually at a church um, that just really supports recovery, and they generously donated their space, and so it was just funny to me because I'm thinking, man, like the things that are going down in this church right now, um, that's probably like uh, not what was intended. But uh, to be seen in these walls, but um, yeah, it's it's incredible. I mean, people just have so much fun. They really let their hair down and just let loose. And you have people just showing up completely as themselves. Like there are people in full ball gowns to people in you know ripped jeans and t-shirts. It's just really kind of whatever goes. That's a lot of fun. Yeah, it is a lot of fun. And it's kind of, when you think about, I mean, in Houston, there's millions of people, right? Mm -hmm. And when you think about the percentage of people that are in recovery or have issues with addiction, it's kind of surprising that there aren't more opportunities for that, right? In fact, we, we actually, um, on we did a podcast earlier today, and one of the quotes that the guy mentioned was he said, if you're not having fun in recovery, you're going to go back to using yeah. And so that need for, you know, those kind of fun, wholesome recreation is really a huge demand. And I, and I wonder if a lot of people really just, I think there's that element of not knowing how to do it. Right. And like you said, oh, if you go into water, you're going to drink, like that's what you do to have fun there. But there are tons of people who go boating or fish or tube or whatever and, and are not drinking. So it's just that like relying, realigning kind of your, expectations of the event right and knowing how to have a good time um so so we're out of utah and obviously there's 
a lot of kind of faith-based culture here, right? Sure. It's defi- definitely a, a, a sober society in a, in a lot of ways. In fact, I think BYU is regularly the most sober college in the country, right? <laughs> and there, so there are actually multiple clubs here where they just don't sell alcohol. So yeah. like you could go dance any night of the week and like one night it's country dancing and the next night it's salsa dancing and then you know the next night it's hip hop or whatever. And so it, it, it totally exists and there's hundreds of people there every night, you know? So th- there totally is a demand, but it's funny to think that how taboo that is, right? How hot, how odd it is, would be to just walk into a club where they didn't sell alcohol. And yet at the same time, if you think about the numbers, there ought to be plenty of demand, right? You're, and you're, and your sober reef proves that, you know, at least one night, one night a year, there's demand for that, right? So that's cool. Congrats on that and the success of the program. How many years have you done it now? Um, we, we did it for three years. So our first one was in 2017. Mm, that's fun. Yeah. That's cool. So I noticed that you've got a, a son that's in the Marines. What's, what's it like to have a, uh, be a mom? Cause I, I relate to this to be a mom with a son in the Marines. How'd you feel about that? So he's, he's actually not a Marine. He attends the Marine military Academy. Okay. Um, but it, it makes me feel very proud. Um, just to see how much he's accomplished since he's gone there. Um, it's a boarding school, so it's actually about five hours away from Houston. So I do miss him terribly while he's gone. But, you know, um, his dad and I really want him to live a different life than we did. And, you know, for me, I started using it at a very young age. And so whenever I noticed that there was some use that was starting to happen in his life. Um, We gave him the option, you know, if you continue to do this, you'll leave us no choice but but to place you in a military boarding school. And so um, you can do the math on that. (laughs) He ended up there. But, you know, it's one of those things that – they say in the program that God will do for you what you will not do for yourself. And I don't think I would have had the strength to make that decision on my own, but my son is completely thriving in that environment. He has just grown so much, um, both literally he's huge, um, but also in his levels of respect and his levels of responsibility his grades are amazing. He gets to play all of these sports. So I'm very, very proud of him. And if he decides he wants to go into the military, I would support that fully. Um, but right now, he's still saying that he wants to go to the University of Arkansas and play baseball. That's where that's where his parents went. So, <laughs> you know, we'll see. We, we've still got two more years to decide where he ends up for mm-hmm. college. Cool. Interesting. That's kind of cool that you have that, you know, that that's, that's kind of where, what your solution was to seeing him go down a path and wanting that to be different and that you've got that opportunity to do that. Is that, he loves it there and he's thriving there. Um, I imagine he misses you guys too, but he's a teenage boy, right? They don't, they don't usually say that. <laughs> Sometimes he says it, he says it more than he ever has before. Um, 
but yeah, he's totally thriving in that environment. And, um, it's just, you know, they're able to offer him a level of discipline that I, I don't think that I could. Um, but more than that, like one thing I'd like to touch on is just that, you know, my son, he, when he started kind of dabbling in some things, it wasn't considered addictive. So I sent him to an, um, to an intensive outpatient to see if he could get treated there. And they said that he didn't meet criteria for treatment. And so it's just sort of frustrating that when you have a child that is high risk because of, you know, genetics, but then also his actions are showing, but it's like, it's like, well, what do you want? Do you want him to be like shooting up heroin before he's able to meet criteria for your program? Like I'm trying to like, curtail that right like I'm trying to get him in before we get to that point um so you know it's just it's weird the way that that works but I wish there were more prevention programs for kids um but it kind of seems like you have to already be like deep into an addiction before you're able to get treatment as a kiddo that's that's an interesting point that you make because in our line of business you know we're authorizing people in treatment and we'll see a diagnosis of marijuana and we're like, yeah, that's not going to work, right? Yeah. They're not, you're not going to get insurance to pay for treatment for marijuana. You're not losing your life. It's, you know, it's legal in some places and, and some would say it's not addictive, which we all know it is, but, um, but it's, it's, it is, I, that's a real, a, a real piece. And we, you know, and how many times have we had somebody come in, it's got mental health all over the place. They've got issues but their substance abuse isn't quite bad enough and their mental health isn't quite bad enough that, you know, insurance says, no, they don't need the help. You know, they can be treated at a lower level of care. And I'm like, okay, but if it's not inpatient, then they're still behavior, they're still engaging in the patterns. They can't stop. Like you're not getting this, right? Yeah. Yeah. I actually got a call for someone the other day who, um, I think definitely would have benefited from our treatment program, but yeah, same thing. He, was a recovering alcoholic who had started using marijuana, um, possibly synthetics, which we, you know, weren't 100% sure on, but because he was just admitting to the marijuana, he unfortunately didn't meet criteria to come to our treatment center. So we had to refer him out to a lower level of care. And, you know, it's, I'm sure you guys are well aware that, you know, working with insurance companies can definitely be um, tricky sometimes. <laughs> it's Most challenging. Times. Yeah, it's yeah, so it challenging. Because <laughs> yeah. we want to help people and they tell us no. And it's like, no, you don't understand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, believe me, like we are constantly um, at the last resort. You know, we have a whole team of people that just work with insurance companies because we're trying to get our clients the best possible care for their substance use disorder. And when an insurance company comes back on say, yeah, so if someone is, you know, working through their treatment and then insurance comes back and they say, well, we think that they've had enough time in in your treatment center and now it's time to set them down to intensive outpatient you know, our clinical team has to really fight to get those days so that they can stay into treatment. Um, but, you know, it's one of the things that 
very grateful for insurance companies because without them, think about the number of people who wouldn't be able to have access to treatment. So, you know, it kind of goes both ways. It does. And, and the thing that I've noticed about insurance companies, which I find this interesting, is when you, you know, when you call, when we call to go get an authorization, that insurance company, if they've been with them for any period of time, knows, probably knows more about that person than we do. And so then we're telling them a story that they already know, you know, a year's worth of treatment episodes that we don't know about because they haven't disclosed it. And so we, sometimes it's, it's, it's like we have to just accept that they probably have a better idea of what this client, whether they're ready for treatment now or not. And, and so some of their decisions are on the background, you know, the same thing is they know more than we do and they can't tell us. <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's two sides to it. And I'm not going to say they're always right, but, but there are two sides to it. I, I'm, there's two sides to it. And I'm not going to say they're always wrong. That's right, because they're wrong often. I'll tell you, anytime they tell me no, they're wrong. You're <laughs> the benefit of the doubt, so good job. <laughs> Sarah, one thing we haven't talked about a ton that I'm curious about is what did, what did your, how did you end up in substance use and what did that journey look like? What, what were some of your challenges and then what were some of your pivotal points that allowed you to, to do recovery? Sure. So I think I mentioned that I started drinking at a very early age. I was actually 11 when I had my first drink. So very, very early. And I would say that by the time I was 14, I was drinking alcoholically. However, I was one of those high functioning alcoholics. So I still had really good grades. I was still in lots of clubs and did lots of volunteering and so no one looked at me and thought well there's a troubled girl I was able to sort of skate by and then I get into college and I got a full ride to the University of Arkansas so I had to keep a certain GPA to maintain my scholarships which I managed to do even though by that point my drinking had wrapped up to being almost daily and was certainly um, engaging in alcoholic uh, drinking by that point and then, you know, also throughout high school and college, I would dabble in drugs as well, um, primarily using marijuana. But, you know, if other things were available, I would certainly use them too, whether it was cocaine, uh, ecstasy, mushrooms, um, those types of, of drugs or pills of some sort. And so right after I graduated from college, a couple of months after I graduated, I found out that I was expecting my son, Jack. And at that point, um, I knew that I needed to get sober for the time being. Um, and it was, it was difficult, but you know, other things popped up. I would say that an eating disorder definitely popped up in place of my alcoholism while I was pregnant with him. And then I can recall the first time that I decided to drink after my son was born. Um, he was probably about six weeks old. I went out with a girlfriend and it was just an absolute cluster. I ended up losing my purse, my phone, um, getting like in a cab that couldn't get us home and was just like riding around until four in the morning. It was just a disaster. And I remember that next day just feeling, you know, really hungover, thinking this, this isn't right. Like I'm a mother now and yet I found that I couldn't stop. So my, my drinking 
became less frequent after I became a mother, but it was still just as intense. Anytime that I would drink, I would drink to the point of blackout. So I would say that I was a binge drinker and it was just really unsafe and unhealthy. And, you know, my partner at the time, um, we would engage in these behaviors together. So it was kind of like a pointing finger situation, like, oh, you're worse, you're worse, whatever. Um, so that relationship did not work out. And when it ended, we went through um, a custody trial. And after the initial trial, we went through a second trial and um, where this one, I kind of picked it um, because he traveled a lot for work and we had 50-50 custody. And I thought, well, this isn't very fair anymore. It was all about what I wanted and what I thought would be in my best interest, truly not the best interest of our child. But it was one of the best things that could have ever happened because whenever we went into family court, the judge who tried our case also happened to be an LCDC, uh, which is a licensed chemical dependency counselor. But she knew a thing or two about addiction. She was also personally an Al-Anon. She had an ex-husband who was an alcoholic. And so she had seen upfront personal um, how this disease affects families. And she threatened to take my son away from me and put him into foster care if I couldn't get clean and sober. And so that was my absolute bottom. That was my absolute wake up call. Um, because after she made those comments, um, at that point an amicus attorney was assigned to our case and he started coming in to do home visits. And, uh, my whole life was under a microscope. I had to turn in, all of my bank statements and credit card statements to prove like what I was purchasing. And so I started getting really crafty. I would kind of try to beat the system. And so I would go to the, I would go to the grocery store and buy a bunch of wine, maybe a little bit of food. And then I would actually take cash out so that I always had spending money to, to go out or to buy alcohol at a liquor store. It was like, I was almost stealing money for myself in order to maintain this drinking, which kind of just spiraled out of control and became this very shame-filled thing. Because before, I always would try to like justify my drinking by saying, well, you know, I, I must not be an alcoholic because I can hold a job. Or I must not be an alcoholic because I'm in PTA. You know, I must not be an alcoholic because of XYZ. I was the queen of justification. And here I was in a situation where there was no justifying my way out of it. I mean, I was, I was risking losing custody of my child to the foster system if I got caught drinking and I still could not stop. And there was this one morning when uh, my son and I, I promised him that we would go to the park when we woke up the next morning. I consumed, um, probably three and a half bottles of wine. And I really only know that because of how much was in the trash the next morning because I blacked out um, just drinking alone. It was very desolate in those days. And so the next morning when we wake up, my son's like, mom, mom, you promised we would go to the park. And as I mentioned, I got sober in June, which in Houston, June is very hot. So it was a hot 
we start walking to the park and I immediately am like, oh man, this is not going to be good. Like I'm going to throw up everywhere if I take one more step. And so I've been informed my son that unfortunately, you know, mommy's not feeling so good and we're going to have to go back home. And I can just remember that walk back home so clearly his little head was hung low. He just felt really dejected and sad that, you know, essentially I had broken a promise to him. And so we get back to the house and we get inside and I open up my fridge and I'm looking for something just to drink to like quelch my extreme dehydration. And as I'm standing there with the fridge blasting cold air on me, I heard a voice tell me, you will die if you keep drinking. And it was, it was like clear as day. I mean, it was like I could audibly hear it. Um, and it was a very stern yet very loving voice. And I believed it. Like I absolutely knew that it was true. And so the following day, I went to my very first um, 12 step recovery meeting that, that I chose to go to. I had been to some 12 step recovery meetings before at the insistence of an attorney, um, in college, I got arrested a couple of times for alcohol related offenses. So I was court ordered to go to them then, but I had never chosen on my own to go to a 12 step meeting. And in that instance, I decided that this had to be it. And so I showed up and, uh, that was June 24th of 2014 and completely by the grace of God, I have not had another drink since then. Mm, that's an incredible story. And, and just the journey, right? The journey of, <clears throat> I mean, recognizing that you can't stop. If you pick up the drink, you can't stop and that the consequences even as dire as they were. And, and, and I, I mean, as a mother losing our children, like that's, there's nothing I can't, I mean, I've worked with a lot of women and I don't think that there's anything that they've regretted more than losing their children. And yet they couldn't stop the behavior. Um, yeah. it just lends to the degree of it, but I'm, I'm fascinated that, I mean, not everybody can do that is just go to a 12 step and engage and, and then be able to manage it. So it's pretty fortunate that you were able to do it like that. I attribute it all to having a higher power looking out for me. I mean, I know that I couldn't have done it on my own. Um, so I'm very grateful to my higher power. Mm. Well, and it's not, I mean, I don't hear a lot of people. I hear a lot of people really you know, grateful for their higher power and they'll say that there's miracles, but not too many of them will come right out and say that, you know, my higher power spoke to me and it was very yeah. clear. Did you yeah. have, did you have religious or spiritual influence prior to that? No, not at all, but you better believe I sure became religious afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> right. It has a way of like, Hmm. Like, how do you explain that away, right? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's it. Like, I I really couldn't explain it considering how many times things had happened in my life and I tried to quit or told myself, you know, I won't do this again. And then to literally just hear a voice one time and never drink again. Like, I know that that's so much bigger than me. Hmm. But yeah, my, my relationship with God, um, it, 
it was tricky because I think I always believed in God, but I believed that I had done too many horrible things to ever be loved or accepted by God. Um, and that's just good old Southern Bible Belt theology that taught me that, <laughs> um, which was really bad theology, unfortunately. And um, I was able to meet God in a an authentic way in recovery, which did end up leading me to the church. Um, and I found a community of believers that the whole mission is to reach non-religious Houstonians. And so I feel like I fit in really well there because I can totally relate with what that feels like. Mm. That's pretty, it's, it's amazing to me how many people that we've talked to on the pot in the podcast that have come on and with almost without fail, people have talked about spirituality being one of the very key components and pivotal moments for them, um, which I, I find interesting. Now, there's times where I'll solicit it, but there's times where they just outright talk about it. And, and it, it just it's very interesting to me because we have research that says, you know, spirituality is is a huge contributor to recovery and spirituality. You know, there's a lot of pieces around spirituality. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I haven't heard too many people say, I don't know that. I mean, people have said, I don't know that you can do true recovery without some kind of spirituality element to it. Yeah. I'm with you there. Um, that's my personal belief. And I just know that, you know, I mentioned I've been arrested a few times. I've actually lost jobs due to being tardy, um, or just like not showing up to work. I've wrecked a car, I lost a marriage. I mean, I have had plenty of consequences that more than proved to me, if you look at the data, I have no business drinking, but I still drink anyway. <laughs> and so to have this one spiritual experience where I hear a voice um, and change the entire course of my life, I mean, for me, like, how else can you explain that mm. other than there being a higher power looking out for me? Yeah. So I'm very grateful for that. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. Um, I, I want to ask um, about the last past, last, sorry, the last <laughs> resort recovery center. My tongue won't, yeah. is a little tied. Talk about what you do there and, and what, you know, what the program is all about. Sure. So the last resort recovery is actually a male treatment center located in Smithville, Texas. We're about an hour south of Austin and we're unique in that we are 45 to 90 days. So a little bit longer term. And we're also unique in that we are treating the trauma at the same time that we're treating the substance use disorder. We do that through a few different modalities of treatment, but the primary one is equine therapy. So we are on a 50 acre ranch and we have 20 horses on the ranch. And it is just a beautiful setting for someone to come and get the recovery that they are searching for. We have master level clinicians. We have a psychiatrist on staff. We have a medical team on staff. We have countless recovery coaches and most of our staff are in recovery themselves. And so they can really understand what our clients are going through. 
Um, they do a lot of really hard work while they're with us, but we also want to teach them that you can have fun in recovery too. And so they're able to actually ride the horses. We have a pool. We have a really great gym. Uh, the guys stay in cabins. So it has kind of almost like this camp feel. And we're really teaching them about building healthy relationships while they're with us because as you probably know, one of the biggest contributing factors to relapse are unhealthy relationships. And so we think that that's an integral part of recovery as well. So we have a detox on campus. We have the residential treatment center. And then in Austin, we have an intensive outpatient program as well as two sober living houses. So we offer the full continuum of care for our clients. Hmm. It's important. I think it's important because they start that journey and the connections are, is it, are, I won't say equally important, but pretty close to equally as important as the, the recovery, right? Is those connections and, and sober living community that they, that they can connect with. And, and, um, and so it's really valuable. And so having to switch, you know, and not be able to do the whole continuum in one place can be challenging because, you know, they can fall off the wagon in, in that very transition. Yeah. One of the things that I'm really proud of that we do well is making sure that there is that continuum built into their treatment plan. And so a lot of places say that they do this, but we actually have a team member um, who is our care coordinator, and he actually just hired another person to assist him because um we take it so seriously and not only are we finding an intensive outpatient for them whenever they're discharging we're finding a sober living a primary therapist a psychiatrist if they need one regardless of where they're going back to so if our if our clients are not discharging back into the austin area um, obviously it wouldn't make sense for us to push our iop or sober living on them so we want to make sure that we they're at and we are um, encouraging them to attend a place that's going to make the most sense of them where they can start living their life out in recovery holistically mm. yeah I love that I, I love that just for the for, for what you said is it's not all about the money and we want to keep them here but it, not if it's not the right thing for them and going to, to IOP somewhere else is probably the right thing for most of the clients because they've got to connect with their community or they're in the same place they were when they left. Exactly. That's important. I love the story that you shared. I love all of the different connection, connecting pieces with your son, you know, and, and how, how you've been able to kind of shift his path just based on your own journey and the work that you've done. It's, it's been pretty powerful and I've, I've just loved listening. So thank you for sharing with us. I imagine that people are going to want to connect with you and get a hold of you. So you ought to probably share some contact information too. Absolutely. So the best way to reach me would be email. And my email is Sarah B. So that's S A R A H and the letter B is in Bolton at lastresortrecovery.com. Nice. Yeah, I'm sure people will reach out. Uh, uh, you, you've got so many elements to your story, motherhood, um, you know, trying to figure out what recovery looks like, the spirituality piece. It's been fantastic. So thanks for sharing and being willing to take time with us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being invited on.